Welcome to the SCA University Podcast, SCA Distance Learning in Times of Social Distancing. This class is Introduction to the Peerage and is taught by Saito Takauji. When we talk about the peerage in this case, in this class, we're going to be talking about the historical peerage. The point of this class is to therefore introduce what is the peerage upon which the SEA peerage is based on, where did it come from, how is it structured, and how are there differences between the SEA peerage and the historical peerages that they were based on. So the structure of this class is going to be first, what is a peerage? Second, uh, an exploration of the specific iterations of peerages, most specifically the British, English, UK, etc. peerage, and then the French and other continental peerages, And then at the end, a discussion of how the SCA peerage is different than historical peerages and kind of what that tells us, as well as at the end, once we're over the hour-long threshold for rush credit and the 50-minute threshold for Outlands Interkingdom University credit, we'll have a brief discussion for anyone listening from TRMN about how the Royal Manticore and Navy peerage is different from the historical peerage. So let's start at the very beginning here, and that's this first segment. What is a peerage? What is a peer? Well, if you think about the that word, that kind of tells us what we're looking at here. If you're in the military, for example, and you were given a rating of promote ahead of peers, what that means is that you were rated as being more advanced than those other people at your rank and in your promotability. We can therefore take from that and from our normal usage of it that peer is someone who is at the same rank and level roughly as you are. They are not a superior, they are not an inferior, and it is broadly synonymous with colleague. So a peer is therefore someone who is at the same level as you or people who are at the same level as one another. Who is a peer at the same level of? Well, the king. The peerage comes from the idea that there are nobles that are recognized as being alike in dignity, to borrow from Shakespeare, as the crown itself. And that the crown, the king most often, is above them only in the sense that he is their chief, but that he is a chief who is functionally the first among equals. Where does that come from? Where does the idea that there are people who are equal to the crown come from? Because that's kind of contrary to how we view the monarchy and contrary to how the monarchy comes to view itself later. It's important to note that the peerage is very old, and that the relative powers of the peerage is uh, it, it varies over time. But we get to this idea that there are a group of people who are equal to the monarch from a couple of different sources. During the early days of what was broadly called the Roman Empire, the period known as the Principate, 
uh, the early emperors, like Augustus, were not outright viewed as being remote, all-powerful monarchs. Because Augustus, who was uh, born Octavian and became Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus when he was adopted by Julius Caesar and then later was given the title of Augustus, uh, Octavian slash Augustus saw how his uncle, Gaius Julius Caesar, was treated when it was viewed that he had sought to set himself as a king. He was, you know, murdered quite a bit. So the early Roman emperors accumulated title and position and authority that gave them rule as an emperor, but publicly pretended to more piously not be imperial, not be absolute, but instead simply be the principate, which has the same root as the principal, that they were the first citizen, that they were the first among the citizens of Rome, that they were the first among the patricians, but that they were the primus inter pares, the first among equals. And note that word pares is the root of where we get peer, and you can see that more directly in the French where it is pair. So from the Romans you have this idea that an emperor, at least in name, is the first among equals and the chief citizen. From the Saxon, Anglo-Saxon, Norse uh, clans, tribes, uh, extended kin structures, you also see this idea of a chieftain as being the first among equals. And in those systems, you may even see the idea that the leader, the king as we might call him, even if he didn't use that title, might not be a position which goes from a father to a son, but might be a position which moves among an extended family unit, such as in the Irish tanistry system, or even moves from one powerful magnate to another without a necessary inheritance structure. And so especially in those groups, all of which had a lot of influence in the continent and on uh, the island of Great Britain and on the island of Ireland. When you have a system where kingship is not an inherent trait of a single person or family that must pass through inheritance, but rather a position which can pass to a group of broadly qualified individuals, whether qualified by power or blood, then you will tend to see the crown as being, the the king rather, as being one among a group of equals that he leads rather than being a remote absolute monarch. So all of these things come together into the idea that there are those people who are equal to the king even if they are at least nominally subordinate to the king. And note, we're talking a lot about peerage here, but it's important to note that peerage and nobility are not necessarily the same term. And we'll see this as we explore the United Kingdom versus the continental concepts of peerages. But just remember that when we're talking about peerage, we are not necessarily talking about the whole nobility. And we'll get into that more as we get into more specifics. But nobility and peerage are frequently overlapping terms, 
but are not exclusively overlapping terms. So the idea that the peers are equal to the king and that they are possessed of an inherent dignity which not even the king can transgress comes up a lot throughout history. There are a lot of times where the French king is not more powerful than his most powerful magnates or is even in a much weaker position than his more powerful magnates. There are a lot of periods in French history where the, the authority of the French king does not extend beyond kind of the heart of France, the Ile de France, which includes the capital of Paris. Uh, there were a lot of times when if the French king went about unprotected in the lands of Burgundy or the Aquitaine or Normandy, he might get jumped, he might get taken hostage, and he might not have a whole lot of authority, even though he is their nominal feudal superior. You also see it a lot in English history, where the peerage is involved in things like the creation of the Charter of the Forest and the Magna Carta, which guarantee the rights of the peers, and in a specific term that we'll talk about in a little bit, that guarantees those rights against the crown. For all that we talk about, the Magna Carta as being this great charter of liberty that inspired the Declaration of Independence. Fundamentally, it did not give it didn't give anything to the peasants. It gave a lot to the peers. So it's also important to note right at the jump that as we look at these peerages, you're going to see a lot of similarities to one section of the SCA peerage and then basically no similarities to another section of the SCA peerage. And that's important to remember as we go on, even though we're going to have a whole section on those differences. Especially when we're looking at the British peerage, which is the one that the SEA models most closely, it models the royal, or rather, the royal peerage models the peerage most closely. Those bestowed peers, the Order of Chivalry, the Order of the Laurel, the Order of the Pelican, the Order of Defense, don't model the actual peerage of the United Kingdom. They model orders of chivalry. So keep that in mind, that the SCA has a, a bifurcated peerage in a way that the, the UK peerage does not, and that that is an important thing to keep in mind. So, we know that a peer is a nobleman who is equal in dignity to the king who has rights that the king may not automatically transgress, but that are seen as being inalienable, and that they have a history of enforcing those powers against the crown. They are inherited ranks that pass through families, most often from father to son, because history is just steeped in the patriarchy, and that they are movers and shakers whose names we will broadly recognize as we consider them. Now that we have some idea of what a peer is and where the concept of the peerage comes from, let's start taking a look at the way specific peerages function, how they're set up, what their privileges are, and how they look from both the outside and the inside. And that will come after a transition, because we're trying to be professional here.
So, now we turn to specific iterations of the peerages. And we're going to start with the one that the SCA models most closely, at least, that our royal peerage models most closely, that of the peerage of the United Kingdom. And now there's some interesting nomenclature that we need to discuss with, uh, or dispense with briefly, because it is relevant, but it's also irrelevant, but it's important to know. And it's a very confusing way of saying it, but we're going to refer to the, the, the British peerage broadly, but in fact, the, the peerage of that ancient and storied island is actually several peerages that have been welded together. And so there's some weirdness when you're doing research because different things will refer to different things. Or the same thing will refer to different things, or different things will refer to the same thing. Specifically, there are peerages of England, of Great Britain and of the United Kingdom, and of Scotland, and of Ireland. And that is because of the storied and varied and often violent history of those islands. So you had independent peerages in Scotland and England that get welded together when they become Great Britain. You have periods of rule where the English king is also king of Ireland, and so you have Irish peerages, and times when older pre-Anglo-Saxon or pre-Anglo-Irish titles are quote-unquote surrendered to the crown and regranted as peerages in that system. Then, as Ireland is brought into the fold, you have peerages, Irish peerages that are peerages of the United Kingdom, and you have now, of course, some UK peerage titles which refer to lands that are in the Republic of Ireland. You also have titles which were created for the peerage, essentially, of India. So it's, it's kind of a cluster but because that's not the most important thing, because we're doing an overall review here, when we talk about them, we're talking about all of them. I'm not going to stop and make distinctions between them, but just know it's been a weird ride to get to the modern peerage. So what is the peerage in England? And, and how is that related to the nobility in England? And broadly speaking, in England, in the UK and Great Britain, peerage and nobility are synonymous in that the peerage is made up of all titled nobles, all titled people, and that if you are not a titled person or their heir, who will use a subsidiary title, or uh, depending on how you're defining it, sometimes their uh, uh, immediate family, you are not noble. And, and a great way of, of demonstrating this is that Winston Churchill was the grandson and nephew and cousin, in turn, of the Duke of Marlborough. And in fact, the Marlborough family is the Churchill family. That's, that's the family that holds that dukedom. But even though he was the grandson of a duke and the nephew of a duke, Winston Churchill 
was never not a commoner because his father, Lord Randolph Churchill, was not titled. So in the United Kingdom, peerage, nobility, and title are all the same thing. And that the lesser sons of a earl, for example, which we'll get into, are not noble themselves. They are part of the aristocracy. They are aristocrats. But there is a distinction between nobility slash peerage and being gentry or aristocracy. And that's definitely different than the continental systems we'll look at here in a, in a minute, especially the, the distinction between family members and nobility. But in the United Kingdom, the peerage refers to all titled people and their heirs. If you don't have a title, you are not a peer. So what are the ranks of the peerage of the United Kingdom? From lowest to highest, the peerage consists of barons and baronesses, viscounts and viscountesses, earls and countesses, Marquises and Marchionesses, and Dukes and Duchesses. So, right off the bat, note that a baron in the United Kingdom, unlike a baron in the SCA, is a peer. In the SCA, you may be a peer and be a baron, but you are not a peer as a result of your barony. In the British peerage, you are, if in order to be a peer, you must be at least a baron, and barons are the most numerous form of the peerage. There are two kinds of peers in the United Kingdom in the 20th century, and one of them really is a 20th century invention, although it has older roots. The, the more historical form, and the one that we think of when we think of a peer or a noble, is a hereditary peer. That is, you know, you are the 32nd Baron of North Scrappington. You are a member of a family that was granted a title, and that title has descended through the line of inheritance almost universally, those being heirs male of the body, that meaning boys who are born, who, who are not adopted. British peerage, unless there is a special remainder granted when the peerage is made, such as for Horatio Nelson who did not have sons or other peers that at the time of their first creation didn't have sons, it passes to the eldest surviving born peer or born son of the peer at the time of his death. If at the time of the creation there are no sons and none expected, then it might say, from the first baron then to his elder brother and heirs male of the body. Or, if there's a daughter, to his daughter and then to her heirs male of the body. 
I cannot. I can think of maybe one. There might be one peerage in the United Kingdom that that inherits equally, and even that, I might just be mistaking the circumstances of its inheritance. So you actually. So the reason. One of the reasons why so many of the hereditary peerages are dying off is because generation after generation after generation, you have to create sons. And if, say, there's been some dying out, or you've never been a particularly fertile line, and then you run into a generation of daughters, that title can die out. And there's actually a a documentary that you can find on YouTube about how the lines of dukes are dying out because they're not having sons, and they're just running out of people who can inherit them. That's a hereditary peer. There is also what's called a life peer. Life peerages were originally people who had specialized knowledge or were appointed to positions of authority and import that required them to, for example, sit in the House of Lords. Um, uh, Particularly learned lawyers and judges were frequently given a life peerage and appointed to the House of Lords so that... The Lords, because that was until the original, uh, until the creation of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, the House of Lords was the highest judicial body. Um, That was a way of ensuring that that expertise was available to the Lords for its judicial function. So you would have law lords. You would also have certain judges of the Court of the Exchequer that were made uh, life peers. In the 20th century, as Britain grew into more and more of a democracy, you started having more and more of a feeling that having a, an upper body that was primarily composed of people who inherited their position wasn't particularly democratic and shouldn't particularly be preserved. And so you started seeing more and more uh, life peerages being appointed for people to work in the Lords as a reward for long service as a recognition of particular knowledge, but people who were essentially appointed to the upper house to be legislators and provide a broader view in a more democratic fashion. Especially in the second half of the 20th century, that's how the peerage has expanded. I think since like 1959, there have only been seven hereditary peers created and four of those were four members of the royal family. They are not creating royal peerages anymore. They are creating life peers. So the two forms of period, the two forms of title in the United Kingdom are hereditary peers, those old titles uh, going back sometimes hundreds and hundreds of years, and life peerages who are appointed as a reward for service or as a way to bring particular knowledge to the upper chamber, and sometimes because you donated money to the right political party. So again, those ranks, Baron, Viscount, Earl, Marquis, Duke, uh, are the, the ranks of the British peerage. Their order of creation is actually a really interesting historical artifact, too, because some of those titles are seen as being more English than others, and some of those titles are basically uh, 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 recognitions of very old forms. 
the oldest title, the oldest of those titles in the UK is Earl. And Earl comes from the Anglo-Saxon Jarl or the Norse Jarl, which was a pre-existing title which predates the Norman Conquest. A Jarl was a Norse... A uh, uh, nobleman, a Norse magnate, who it, it exercised great power, and that the amount of power and influence varied, right? Uh, because you have jarls that are relatively weak and lead small, uh, small what we might call now barons. Uh, baronies, rather. And then you have all the way up to jarldoms that were functionally kingdoms. So you, you have a jarl of Norway or a jarl of Denmark that we now recognize as, oh, we're calling that the king of Norway or the king of Denmark, but they would have referred to themselves as a jarl. So because of the Anglo-Saxon influence and because of the Norse influence, you have Jarls on the island of England exercising either independent control or Yoldermen exercising kingdom-level control or Jarls and Eldermen and Jarls and all of these other titles that were subsidiary to more powerful monarchs or more powerful nobles. But you have these pre-existing nobles that are there when William the Conqueror, William I, William the Bastard, depending on what side you're on, invades with his Norman posse. And after William invades with his Norman, you know, gang of shenaniganators, he is left with a kingdom that has these weird... Jarls, and his dudes, who some of them have the title of Count. And Count comes from uh, the Latin Comitatus. It was a war... Uh, uh, the Comitatus was a war band tied to a leader by an oath of fealty, uh, and thus the head of a Comitatus became essentially a count. So you have the evolution of the these leaders, which were originally not uh, hereditary in uh, the Frankish Empire, coming to England and saying, oh, well, there are these quasi-independent Jarls, and so you end up merging... Norman counts with existing Yoldermen, uh, Eldermen, Jarls. I'm going to pronounce things wrong here and I apologize. But you, you end up merging those two ranks. Which is also why the feminine form of an Earl is a Countess rather than an Earless or an Earla or however you would do that because there was not a female form of the title. And so as the, the English peerage coalesces into this thing and Earl becomes the equivalent of Count and they start and they use the English form of the title rather than the Norman French form they have to turn to the Norman French form Comtesse which becomes Countess 
uh, for the female form. The next oldest title in the United Kingdom is that of Baron. Baron was created by William I as a recognition for his loyal men. And what distinguished them from others was that a baron held their lands in chief of the king. That is, they answered to no higher authority than the king. And thus, as they're, they're creating the peerage, all men who are land, noble landowners, who are titled individuals, are equal as barons because they are all directly in fealty to the crown. And this later becomes a distinction between the baro regius, the barons of the crown, and those lesser magnates who re receive the title of baron holding land from an earl or a duke. But this is also why you see the terms baronage and peerage acting almost synonymously within the United Kingdom because all peers are barons in the sense that all peers are equal to one another in dignity, if not in title, and all peers answer directly to the crown. And thus you start to see the difference between a baron who is a peer and a feudal baron or a lord of the manor, who is a, a the man of a of a baron themselves. For example, the war that led to the signing of the Magna Carta is called the Baron's War, not because it was only fought by men who were titled as barons, but because it was a revolt of the baronage, of the peerage as a whole, against the crown to demand their dignities. It could just as easily and just as accurately have been referred to as the peerage war. But it, it, it settled on to the, uh, the barons' war because all of the participants were barons in terms of being the king's men and they were all trying to fight. And that's a really interesting thing, especially to consider that in SEA practice. In, in the UK, all peers are also barons in the broad sense, and nearly every peer, even of higher ranks, will also have a baronial title. While in the SEA, barons are not part of the peerage. So Earl is arguably the oldest, baron is created by William the Conqueror, Dukedoms, Duke, is, is the next oldest because when William I invaded, he did so as Duke of Normandy. He was a vassal of the French crown who, you know, local boy makes good, invades England uh, because of a absolutely correct right to do so or a questionable right to do so depending on on which legal theory you subscribe to and whose side you were on but he was a vassal of the french crown that invades england and thus he is king of the english and duke of normandy and in fact for several centuries uh or at least for the next several decades the 
titled Duke of Normandy is considered to be the more important title than King of England. It is only as England comes into its own as an independent country and people begin speaking English in the court rather than Norman French and they start pushing back against being essentially a French splinter colony that the title of King of England becomes more important than that of Duke of Normandy. But so Dukes are introduced as a title with William I. Earls had previously been described as duces, D-U-C-E-S, the plural of the Latin dukes, uh, in chronicles in Latin describing the history of the English, but they were not dukes as a separate rank. They were just earls, jarls, whatever, that were described in Latin as having that power. So the first... English duke is William I as Duke of Normandy. That remained the only dukedom in England until Edward the Black Prince was made Duke of Cornwall by his father in 1336. The next oldest rank is Viscount. Uh, and Viscount is another interesting one because it too is brought in by the Normans where Previously, it had been a, a title. They were an officer, an administrator, subordinate to a count, and originally not an inherited position. You can tell that just from the name. It literally comes from vice-count, a, a, just like vice-president, someone who is subordinate to and working for a count. And they were, like the counts, they were originally not inherited titles because the Franks wanted to keep... Uh, them from gathering enough power and prestige in families to be a threat to the Frankish king. So you have these vice comps who come in with the Normans and are administrators whose administrative roles eventually become taken over by the positions of bailiff and provost. The first inherited noble peer viscounty in England was bestowed in 1440. And then the newest of the peerage ranks is that of Marquis. It was awarded once in 1385, but that was revoked in 1386 when the person was upgraded to Duke, awarded again in 1397, but revoked in 1399 when that person, you know, was a traitor. And then after the 1399 revocation, the Commons petitioned the king to have it restored, but the king actually objected because the title sounded strange to the English tongue. Marquis is, a, is derived from the same root as Margrave or Margraf, uh, uh, those German counts that, because they were on the edge of the kingdoms, were given more autonomy and more responsibility and more power because they were so far remote. But it's not a, a title that comes up natively in English. It is just wholesale imported. The first permanent award of it was bestowed in 1442, and thus I rank it as being newer than Viscount, even though it was awarded before it, but it was not permanently awarded and integrated until 1442. Thus, it is, it is ranked here because its first long-term awarding and permanent establishment was two years after that of the Viscount. 
And note, to this day, to an extent, or at least into the modern era, Viscounties and Marquisates are seen as being strange to England. They are most often seen as subsidiary titles. And at the event of her coronation, the Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne, explained to Queen Victoria uh, that there are very few Viscounts. And specifically, he says, as recounted in her diaries, quote, there are very few Viscounts, that they were an old sort of title and not really English, that they came from the vice comites, that dukes and barons were the only real English titles, that marquises were likewise not English, and that people were made marquises when it was not wished that they should be made dukes. Now, that's an interesting note, because according to Lord Melbourne in the 19th century, Duke, the highest, and Baron, the lowest, of the peerage, are the only truly English titles, in that Baron was created in England, and that Duke was created by an English king for his son, that there were not, you know, Duke... Besides the Duke of Normandy, no other dukes came over, and then the British institution of dukedoms, which are subtly different than the continental institutions, were created wholesale by an English king. Earl, it, 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 presumably Lord Melbourne is saying Earl is not a truly English title because it predates England. It goes back to the, Norm, uh, to the Norse and to the Anglo-Saxons. And of course, vice counts, viscounts, and marquises were imported. And thus you can kind of see a viscount as being for someone who they don't think they should make an earl, and a marquis explicitly for someone they don't think they should make a duke. This explains why there are barely more marquises than dukes, despite the fact that dukes are the pinnacle of the pyramid, and why there are actually fewer viscounts than earls, even though there are more, uh, uh, even though it is a pyramid and you would expect that there would be more viscounts than earls. And one of the only reasons why there are so many viscounts is that for a long time, a viscount was seen, a viscounty was seen as a suitable reward for those positions which were not rewarded with an earldom. Uh, the prime minister would frequently be, or not frequently, but for a long time, was almost universally rewarded at the end of his tenure with an earldom. This only stopped in, I want to say, the 1960s. As Speaker of the House, or a uh, particularly effective cabinet minister, or especially a governor general and regent of a uh, British overseas territory like India or Burma would be made a Viscount instead of an Earl. And even with that, even with there being more foreign ministers and governor generals and speakers of the house than prime ministers, there are still more Earls than Viscounts because Earl is considered, is seen as a more properly English title, just like Duke is seen as a more properly uh, English title than Marquis. So that's the ranks of the peerage and their order of creation. 
Let's briefly talk about the form of address for them before we jump to their privileges and some other fun things. Note that excellency is not used in England the same way it is used in the SCA. A baron is the right honorable, not excellency. And they are lord title, never baron title. Thus, if you are referring to the Lord of Wesselton, or the Baron of Wesselton, rather, I would say Lord Wesselton. I would never say Baron Wesselton, unless I was referring to the title. Uh, women get an exception. You can be Lady X or Baroness X, depending on your preference. Viscounts are, in England, universally Viscount X and addressed as Lord X. And they are also a right honorable. Earls are Lord X or Earl X slash the Earl of X. And that distinction is whether or not the title is based on their last name or location. Marquesses and Marchionesses, and Earls are a right honorable as well. Marquesses and Marchionesses are the Marquess X or of X, and they are the most honorable. And a Duke is always the Duke of X and is your grace. So as you can see there, the SCA only does dukes the same way the British peerage does. In referring to a British baron, you would never call him Baron Cormac. You would always refer to him as Lord Cormac, assuming Cormac was his title, not his name, or both a title and a name. Because at the lower ranks, Baron, Viscount, Earl, and Marquis... The title can either be based on a personal a surname, or it can be based on a land. So, now we've gone over the uh, ranks of the British peerage, uh, their order of creation, and their forms of address. Now let's talk about some more particular uh, particulars about the British peerage. What are the privileges of being a peer? What do you get to do? Well, there are a wide variety, and most of those things have not survived into the modern era, but would have survived in period. Ancient privileges of the peerage included, outright, the right to own a fiefdom from the crown and to pass those lands on from father to son to son to son in perpetuity unless... Uh, the line died out or it was removed. Another one of those privileges was that as you were a peer of the crown, it was seen as being an abuse of power and thus not allowed for the crown to outright deprive you of your peerage. Generally speaking, even if the crown didn't like you or you were a douchebag or you were even minorly criminal, you could only have your peerage stripped if you were treasonous. Now, the crown would not infrequently trump up charges of treason to punish people it didn't like, but that's what it had to do. If you were just caught pickpocketing, you would not lose your peerage. It took an attainder for treason or an act of parliament rather than a whim of the king to strip a peer of his title. Uh, you included things like the right to wear a sword and uh, uh, raise companies of soldiers that you were also required to provide 
a certain amount to the crown in times of military call-up. This is the baronial service, the, the military service that marks a peer, even as it became used less and less over the centuries. You would also have the ownership of your lands. You had the right to hunt in them. You had the right to regulate them. You would have the right of uh, low and high justice, depending on your rank, the ability, i.e., to punish and beat or even sometimes execute, the right to run your own court, these being the court's baron, and, and various other administrative and legal controls over your lands. Your lands, while ultimately answerable to the crown, were semi-autonomous states, especially if you were a duke and independently wealthy and powerful enough that the crown uh, feared to tread on your rights too closely. Until 1999, uh, another automatic right of a peer was to sit in the House of Lords. And in fact, that was one of the distinguishing factors. That a peer received an independent summons to the Council of the King, whereas lesser landowners would receive a group summons by county. And thus, the individual summons uh, made you a lord and the group summons brought you into the lesser council that became the commons. And there's some interesting legal history there where the House of Lords has held that even if he did not mean to, if the king sent a writ of summons to parliament to an individual, that individual went to sit and it is adjudged that that was a parliament, that person is a peer. And there are titles that have been recognized as created because the the king accidentally sent a writ of summons to someone. They, he sent it to the wrong person. Or he sent it and then changed his mind but didn't uh, write a writ of supersedeus, which would have superseded it. Um, and the House of Lords, so a, all peers of England and then Great Britain and then the United Kingdom sat in the House of Lords until 1999. Irish peers and Scottish peers essentially elected representative peers to sit in the peerage of the United Kingdom and had their own Scottish and Irish parliaments that they could sit in. In 1999, seeing it as being undemocratic, the Labour government of Tony Blair passed uh, Lord's Reform, which removed all but 92 of the hereditary peers from the House of Lords. And 90 of those 92 hereditary peers are elected by the hereditary peers. All life peers still automatically have a seat in the House of Lords. And thus, since the Lords has something like 700 members, that makes up the, the vast majority of the body is life peers. Because that's seen as being more democratic since life peers are appointed not by the crown's whims, but by the advice of the government. And so you have a theoretically more democratic body in that they are appointed by non-noble politicians to serve as experts and legislators that can offer a broader perspective in the Lords. The Lords Reform of 1999 was intended to be a short-term 
change as the lords moved to being an entirely appointed or entirely even elected chamber, but there has not been any movement on further lords reform in the last 21 years, and as it is a plank of the labor government and not is and is not normally seen as being beneficial or even good by conservative or Tory governments, it's unlikely that as of May 2020, we will see any movement towards Lord's reforms in the next couple of years, unless the Boris Johnson government gets into a particularly weak spot and needs to woo labor votes with it. Uh, peers were for centuries free from arrest. Uh, this freedom of arre from arrest was on the theory that at any moment they might be needed to go to the sovereign and offer them their advice. Uh, because peers, of course, were those members who could sit in the Lords, which might need to advise the Crown, and before that, the Magna Concilium, the Great Council, that advised the Crown. So because the Crown might at any moment need every Baron and Earl and Duke and whatever to, to tell them how to, you know, fight the Germans, whether we're meaning the Viking Germans or, uh, you know, the modern historical Germans... Uh, a, a peer was free from arrest. This privilege was broadly removed in 1948 and then definitively ruled as removed in 1989 in a case called Pedden International Transport Moss Brothers, the Roe Veterinary Group, and Barclays Bank v. Lord Mancroft, the Lord Mancroft case. Uh, it was specifically written that, quote, the privilege did not apply Indeed, it is unthinkable in modern times that, in circumstances such as they are in this case, it should. Another one was access to the sovereign, and this was both a corporate access in the Lords and uh, Privy Council, and frequently a right of uh, personal access to the sovereign. That again, peers, because they were peer to the uh, crown, were seen as having a an important body, an important uh, a duty, rather, to advise the crown on matters, and that they had a right to do so, and that they did not necessarily have the right to just kick in the door and say, "Hello, Elizabeth, I know what you're what you should do." They did have the right to, as a group, get together and go, "If it would please your Majesty, would you stop?" you know, throwing people out of the Tower of London while laughing and saying, I can do whatever I want because I'm immortal. Um, another privilege was called the Scandalum Magnatum, which was a specific higher form of defamation of criminal offense if you defamed a peer or a great officer of state. It was literally worse to say the Earl of Boffington or Boffingham, Boffingham upon Stoke, that sounds more English, that it was more of a crime to say that the Earl of Boffingham upon Stoke was a serial killer than to say Mr. John Boffin was a serial killer. Just like it was more of an offense to say the Prime Minister is a serial killer than it was to say, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Johnson is a serial killer. Not that I'm accusing Bojo of anything. Probably. Uh, and the scandal of Magnatum was abolished in 1887. Peers are also given parliamentary robes by rank, and their ranks are distinguished by the number of rows on the uh, 
on the robe so that when you are looking at a room full of peers, you can rather easily tell who is of what rank. Uh, the rank of the peer is indicated in rows of ermine. Uh, four for a duke, three and a half for a marquis, three for an earl, two and a half for a viscount, and two for a baron. Royal dukes have six rows uh, and some additional funky business. Um, they also have parliamentary, or excuse me, coronation robes, which are much more, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry. The parliamentary robes are, uh, you can tell their rank because of miniver bars edged with gold oak leaf lattice on the right-hand side of the robe. Four for a duke, three and a half, three, two and a half, and two. Uh, the coronation robes, which are only worn on coronation, have ermine. Parliamentary robes are, quote, a full-length garment of scarlet wool with a collar of white miniver fur, closed at the front with black silk satin ties, but open from the shoulder to the right-hand side. The back is cut long as a train, but this is kept hooked in the garment. Um, the robes are worn by peers at their induction to the House of Lords, as well as the state opening of Parliament. Uh, coronation robes are a beast of a different color. For male peers, the coronation robe is a cloak of crimson velvet extending uh, to the feet, open in the front with white silk uh, satin ribbon ties and trailing behind. Attached to the robe is a cape and collar of miniver pure. The rank of the pure is indicated by rows of ermine tails on the miniver cape. Four, three and a half, three, two and a half, and two. Um, so they get fancy robes. The parliament robes are worn at certain occasions in parliament, and the coronation robes are only worn at coronations. They are also given coronets, and the coronets are uh, very different than we see in uh, the SCA. The coronet of a baron is essentially a flat band with um, uh, six pearls on it. The coronet of a viscount is the band with uh, pearls all the way around it. The coronet of an earl is a coronet alternating pearls on tall posts and strawberry leaves. That of a marquis, strawberry leaves and on points and pearls on points at the same level. That of a duke, strawberry leaves all the way around. Coronets in the UK peerage are functionally only worn uh, at coronation. Beyond that, they are not worn. Uh, so compared to the modern tradition, the SCA wears its coronets way, way, way too often. Uh... Another uh, interesting part of the British perspective of the SCA is what are called subsidiary titles and courtesy titles. The uh, courtesy titles are relatively easy to think about in that if you marry a duke, you become a duchess. 
you do not have an inherent right to being a to be a duchess yourself. But if you marry a duke, you become a duchess. If you marry an earl, you become a countess. Uh, thus, the, how uh, you had a bunch of um, American women suddenly becoming duchesses and countesses and baronesses when they married members of the British peerage. The wife of a peer gets the feminine form of his title. The husband of a female peer in her own right does not get any title. So that is an interesting bit of uh, uh, misogyny left over in the British period system. But, uh, so courtesy titles are, if you marry someone who has a title and you are a woman and they are a man, you get the feminine form of their name. Subsidiary titles are those titles used by your children while you are alive. For example, if the Duke of Snuffingham is uh, uh, alive and uh, sitting in Parliament, his heir, his eldest son, might be the Earl of Hammingsnuff. It because in the course of the history of that title, the Duke also th that dukedom also has an earldom associated with it and a baron associ a barony associated with it. And specifically, when all peers had the right to sit in the House of Lords, if the Duke of Snuffingham was uh, sitting in the House of Lords and his son was of age, his son might be summoned to the House of Lords as one of those lesser titles. Uh, that's why the, uh, for example, the, I believe, Earl of Wessex, who is uh, Prince Edward, the son, uh, youngest son of Queen Elizabeth, uh, Prince Edward is the Earl of Wessex. His son is James Viscount Severn because Viscount Severn was a subsidiary title given to the Earl of Wessex when he was made a peer. That's also why, for example, Prince William, the eldest son of the Prince of Wales, is the Duke of Cambridge, the Earl of Strathern, and Baron Carrickfergus. That way, his son, George, could be referred to as the Earl of Strathern as he grows up. So, heirs use a secondary title unless they are the child of a baron, because a baron, of course, does not have a subsidiary title. Even if the baron has more than one barony, it is not appropriate to have the child be of the same rank of the, as the father, so he would not be referred to as a subsidiary title. Uh... Other children of a peer also get courtesy titles. If you are a Duke or a Marquis's younger son, you are Lord John Smith. If you are the younger son of any other peer, you are the Honorable John Smith. And if you are the child of a Baron at all, I believe you are the Honorable John Smith. 
A duke's daughter, a marquis's daughter, or an earl's daughter is Lady Jane Smith. And the daughter of a viscount or baron is the Honorable Mary Smith. If married to a commoner, they are still a lady or an honorable, but they would use their husband's surname. Thus, Lady Jane Smith, who is a duke's daughter, marries Mr. Gregory Batten. She would be Lady Jane Batten. She doesn't lose her ladyship or her honorableness, but uh, instead uses her husband's surname in that instance. Also, as we've been talking about this, you will note that there has not been any discussion of royalty. That we, we said that the, the ranks of the peerage went from baron to duke. That's because if you are a prince of the United Kingdom, you are not a peer, you are a royal. Royal is above peer, even though they might have peerage lands themselves. And this is important because in the, in the United Kingdom, those people that can uh, call themselves prince or princess are limited by royal decree. And until William and Harry started having kids, it was that you had to be the grandchild of, a, of the monarch or the eldest son of the eldest son of the Prince of Wales and that everybody else was not a prince or princess. Now, because they are all living so long and having children and, and continuing generations, that has been expanded, so she is Princess Charlotte. But being royal is a separate class from being a peer, even if you have a peerage title. And to be royal is to be both more powerful in many ways than a peer, but also more dependent on the crown. Because note that, I, as, as I said, the crown can say, oh, we're expanding the title of royal highness to these people. The crown can also say, we are depriving the title of royal highness from these people. As we said before, the crown cannot summarily strip a peer of their peerage title. But the crown can absolutely say, fine, you are no longer a prince or princess. They can also say, even they can say, as in the case of uh, Duke Harry and Duchess Meghan, not to refer to someone as a prince, even though they maintain the right to that title. Versus, which is why Harry, Harry's grandmother, the, the queen, could have just stripped his title as a prince, but she could not have just stripped his title as uh, the Duke of Sussex. We also, before moving on, need to talk about uh, knights slash the orders of chivalry and baronets, because it's important to note that these ranks are not part of the peerage. A knight is not a peer, but they do have a lot of influence on how we view things in the SCA that we will get to. So the following are the orders of chivalry in the United Kingdom, the Order of the Garter, the Order of the Thistle, the Order of St. Patrick, the Order of the Bath, the Order of St. Michael and St. George, and the Order of the British Empire. Each of those is an order of chivalry. The first three are the premier orders for the three premier countries of the, or for the three countries of the United Kingdom, the Garter for England, the Thistle for Scotland, and St. Patrick for uh, Ireland. It, the Order of St. Patrick is not given anymore, 
because it was for Ireland as a whole, not just Northern Ireland. But it is still an active order. There were also orders for India and Burma that are no longer active as those are now completely independent countries that no part remains beholden to the British crown. The next three, uh, the Order of the Bath, the Order of St. Michael and St. George, and the Order of the British Empire, are given for uh, civil and public service, diplomatic service, and cultural service, respectively. Uh, the Order of the Bath has two, uh, two divisions, a military and a civil division, and you see that a lot given to, say, generals. Uh, the Order of St. Michael and St. George, you see a lot given to the diplomatic service, uh, where the show uh, Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister joked that to be a commander of the Order of St. Michael and St. George CMG uh, meant call me God to be a uh, knight commander KCMJ was meant kings call me God and to be a grand commander a GCMG meant God calls me God. Below the Orders of Chivalry, there is the rank of Knight Bachelor, which is to be made a knight without being inducted into one of the other orders. And that's kind of the, the base level of knighthood for men. While since there is no female form of a Knight Bachelor, the first or, or lowest form of knighthood that a woman is appointed to is a Dame of the Order of the British Empire. None of those orders of chivalry are inheritable. They are honors for your lifetime alone. Uh, baronets are inheritable dignities. They pass from father to son. They are created like peerages in that they are created by letters patent. They are attached to a titular designation of land, although there may be more than one for land, like there is a baronage of Nova Scotia and they grant you the title of Sir. Those are important because uh, the while the royal peerage of the SCA functions and is structured similar to the peerage of the United Kingdom, the bestowed peerages of chivalry, laurel, pelican, and defense function much more like the orders of chivalry. And we will talk about that when we get to the SCA section. But first, we're going to put in a little transition here, and then we are going to talk about continental privilege, uh, continental peerages. Now that we've talked about the British peerage, its ranks, its form of address, its history and creation, its privileges, uh, what it can wear, and how you refer to it. All right, now that we've gone through the ones that kind of look like what we're used to, let's talk about the ones that really do look different, the, kind of the French and continental peerages. We're going to mostly focus on France, but this also applies to some of the German forms of peerage, some of the uh, Spanish forms of peerage, and we'll bring in some examples there. But we're going to use French as an example to look at it. Because the most important difference between the French and British peerages is that in France, not all nobles are peers. And not all titled nobles are peers. Peerage is a separate and smaller titular dignity. And it can be attached to nothing, no noble title, or it can be attached all the way out up to a duke. And sometimes in some of these systems, to be a peer is to be more important 
than to be a titled noble. In the Spanish system, for example, a baron who is a peer, they use this, the, the title grande or grandee, a baron who is a grandee outranks a duke who is not. So you see a really different iteration there. You also see a much, diff, a much broader iteration in who is noble, I, primarily because not all peers are, uh, not all nobles are peers. So whereas in England, the only two members of a family that are really noble are the title holder and his heir, in French and continental systems, all of the members of a family are considered nobility because they're not all peers, so they can be a little bit more, you know, generous. Um, and that's really interesting because in some of the continental systems, like I want to say Italy and Belgium, you will have families where if you're, if the head of the family is, you know, the uh, uh, Count of uh, Rome, just to make one up, if he is the Count of Rome, then all legitimate members of the family are referred to as count or countess. And that's right, uh, that's really different. That's really wildly different than the English system. So in the continental system, who is a noble is much more expanded because who is a peer, in part because who is a peer, is much more contracted. France originally had 12 peers, and they were six uh, ecclesiastical peers and six civil peers. They were the Archbishop Duke of Reims, the Bishop Duke of Léon, the Bishop Duke of Langres, the Bishop Count of Beauvais, the Bishop Count of Chalon, and the Bishop Count of Noyon, and then the Duke of Normandy, the Duke of Aquitaine slash Guyenne, the Duke of Burgundy, the Count of Flanders, the Count of Champagne, and the Count of Toulouse. That number was expanded over time, but even in 1588, there were only 24 peers. By comparison, during the reign of James I, 1603 to 1625, so just a little bit later in England, he created 62 new peers. Over time, as I said, the peerage came to be expanded and eventually was always given with the title of Prince du Sang, or Prince of the Blood, and a dukedom, where it was duke et pair, but it was always divorced from the title, unlike in the UK, in that it continued to be peerage was a separate dignity on top of a titular dignity. Uh, the privileges of the French peerage. Uh, some of them were similar to England. The hunt owned fiefdoms, wear a sword, freedoms from certain forms of taxation or persecution on um, uh, uh, persecution under courts and the law, the right to be tried by their peers. Uh, they had different forms of address uh, that were very different from both the UK peerage uh, and from the SEA peerage in that you generally see that the two that are consistent are majest and highness for royalty, but then you get into weird things like, you know, Duke de Berry, title de land, Monsieur de Berry, where it's Monsieur de land, Monsignor de land, you know, Monsignor de Berry, which is only for the highest rank, and Monsieur le title, Monsieur le duc, or Monsignor le duc. 
So they they really do get into some weird forms of what we would almost consider to be title stacking rather than a form like right honorable or excellency. Um, and also really interesting to note is that in France, the, the forms of royalty are greatly established because you have uh, uh, what are called the immediate royal family, which includes the uh, fils et garçon de France, the son, uh, daughters and sons, I don't know why I did it that way, uh, of France. And then you have also the uh, les, uh, grand fils et, uh, of France. You have the grandchildren of France, and those are the royal family. The, the crown and their immediate family, their children and grandchildren are all what the royal family. But then you also have what are called the prince, a prince du sang, a prince of the blood, who is not, unlike in some novels and unlike in the usage that is sometimes put to in the SCA, is not just a child of the crown, a non-inheriting child or grandchild of the crown, but is instead a prince du sang is the head of a branch or a member of a branch of the royal family. So a cadet branch of the royal family or a cousin branch that split off and is no longer in the direct line, but is still descended from the same royal source as the current line. And then you also have the princes étrangers, the stranger princes who are those people who have royal titles recognized by the French court, but that were not French. So people who came in and their either their kingdoms were uh, destroyed or absorbed by other people or occasionally absorbed by the French, but are given titles and then frequently also French, French titles or even French peerages. And they have a whole set of, of rankings and privileges too. The Princes du Song were ranked according to their uh, uh, descent, the cadet branches and... So you have a whole lot more royalty that are not the immediate royalty, and the peerages get a little bit weird and are completely divorced from the, uh, the titles. So as you can see, we did not draw a lot from the French or continental peerage systems for the SCA, but nonetheless, they still show how that view of peerage could also come to be. That instead of Eng the English view where all titular nobles are peers, the idea that, no, to be a peer of the crown is to have additional responsibilities, additional duties, uh, additional prestige that not every noble is going to get, and that you could be a very successful, very wealthy, very powerful comte and not also be a peer. So we're going to pause there and then we'll talk briefly about the differences from SCA practice and the differences from TRMN practice and then everyone can be on their way and get their class credit. So now we are here at the end and let's compare some of what we've learned to actual SCA practice and, and how they look differently and what kind of that means. Now, if you don't know the structure of the SCA peerage, I encourage you to go back and listen to the first episode of this podcast where uh, I, I laid it out and I talked about the different ranks and their forms of address. I'm not going to go through it all here, but just as a quick refresher, the SCA has two sides to the peerage. 
the royal peerage for those people who have been crowned before or territorial prince before, and those are Viscount, Count, uh, and Duke, and the bestowed peerage for those who are uh, the top of the field in armored combat, arts and sciences, service, and rapier, respectively, those being the order of the chivalry, including the knights and masters at arms, the order of the laurel, the order of the pelican, and the order of defense. The first biggest difference that you will probably have noticed in SCA practice from uh, period and modern British or French practice is that peers in the U barons are always peers in the UK, could be peers in France, but are never by right of that rank uh, peers in the SCA. Like I said earlier, a court barony or a landed barony in the SEA never comes with a peerage. You can be a peer and a uh, baron. My knight, for example, is uh, Sir Titus Claudius Severus, who is also a court baron by virtue of having been the second baron of Unserhofen. But if he was not a knight, he would not be a peer by virtue of that barony, which is completely different from period British practice, where baron is such an important part of the peerage that it is used to refer to the whole shebang. Or France, where peerage is completely divorced, a peer is completely divorced from a noble title. We also use very different forms of address. Everyone from a baron through a count is addressed as Your Excellency in the SCA. That is not the case in uh, most of Europe. Uh, we do use Your Grace, which is uh, the same for dukes and duchesses in the UK, but the UK and France don't use Excellency like we do. An Excellency is generally an ambassador or religious official. In the UK, for example, archbishops are Your Grace and bishops are Your Lordship. Spanish peers do use a form of excellency, but it is expressly tied to the rank of grande, their form of peer, rather than baron or count, etc. So anyone who has a grande is, I believe, the most excellent noble, regardless of what their other title is, but that's, that's because they're grande rather than whatever their other title is. So the SCA also divorces peerage from nobility, in that the SCA bestowed peerages are much more akin to the orders of chivalry, in that no, the order, think of how we refer to them, the order of chivalry, well, that's pretty obvious, the order of the garter, or the order of the laurel, the order of the thistle, the order of the pelican, the order of St. Michael and St. George, the order of defense. We have expressly structured them as chivalric orders, even though we only refer to the chivalry as chivalry and knights. But this actually goes back to the history of the other peerage orders. The Order of the Laurel, which was the first order created after the chivalry, was originally envisioned as a chivalric order, and the title would have been a Knight of the Order of the Laurel, or a Knight of the Laurel, the same way you are a Knight of the Garter. This was... Uh, uh, changed when the first soon-to-be Laurel did not like it. But they're in a different universe. We have a more period and more peerage-correct practice where 
a new laurel is dubbed a Knight of the Order of the Laurel. But that's also why those ceremonies look the way they do. Our peerage ceremonies, even for non-chivalry, are much closer to a the creation of a new knight of a British order of peerage than they are to the creation of a new duke. So the SCA divorces peerage from titular nobility and also expands the concept of peerage to include things that are functionally orders of chivalry. We also have very different, as I said, very different coronets where our earl slash county coronets, embattled coronets, are not reflected anywhere in peerage practice. An embattled coronet essentially represents a, a city or fortress. Our strawberry leaf coronets are correct for dukes, and our bishop coronets are broadly correct. But even in those, we wear them significantly more than both British peers do now and British peers did during period. We use them as the marks of rank and wear them every day, while those people who historically would not have done so. And of course, the last major, major difference between an SCA peerage and a period peerage and a historical peerage is our peerages are not inheritable. The SCA takes a much more meritocratic view of peerage and the, our highest dignities in that every single person there has earned it. They have not inherited it. Until the modern era, the overwhelming majority of peers were inherited peers. Crowns would create new ones each reign as old ones died off and new people were worthy of recognition or were just liked by the crown or in some cases because the crown wanted to make the love to them. But it, those were all with the expectation that they would be inherited and often there are people holding titles that were created by you know, Henry VIII to this day. So the SCA has changed that a lot by saying that yes, the eldest child of a peer of, of the eldest child of a duke may themselves be no more than a lord or lady for the for their entire life because they have to earn it. So you can see we've gone through some major differences between uh, the SEA peerage practice and historical peerage practice. And none of this is to say that the SEA is wrong. The SEA is not an actual history, right? The, the, the kingdom of Kalantir exists in our hearts and on a map of America with certain areas shaded in, but did not exist in period. So it's fine that the SCA uses these changed forms, but it is definitely an interesting thing that we chose to take some of the titles but refer to them differently, we chose to structure it differently, we chose to muddy the waters between peerage and orders of chivalry, and it, it really does show us some interesting things about the early years of the SCA, how much we knew, how much we decided to change. And we came up with a system that works broadly for us, even if it is not the most representative of, peer, of period systems. 
Now, if you are just here for the SCA, that is where we will sign off. Because we are over time, and thus no one could accuse me of padding the time, I am going to include briefly, hi for all the TRMN people of the Royal Manticore Navy. How are TRMN peerages differently? Well, TRMN peerages are inheritable in a way that period and modern peerages are, but SCA peerages aren't. As uh, a TRMN peer, as the Earl of Camera Stellata, I will pass that title on. Those titles may also be passed on not in direct lineage the same way that British titles would be. For example, when Honor Harrington is, a little bit of spoilers here, presumed dead, the title passes to her cousin, Devon. Under the normal circumstances for British peerages, that would have required an act of parliament or the creation of a new peerage because Devon is not descended from the first peer uh, because he is Honor's cousin, not Honor's you know, great-grandson or whatever. Uh, so he would not normally, he would not have inherited in the British system. Uh, so Tiarman has inheritance, but it also has broader inheritance in the books and it also probably has a broader inheritance overall. TRMN also has automatic inheritance on equal primogeniture or even designation by the peer. That is, a TRMN peerage is not going to die off because there are no sons. Uh, if, if there are daughters, it will go to them. If there are no children, a peer can designate an heir. It can jump more broadly. Um, we also, TRMN has different ranks. The ranks of peerage in TRMN are... Baron, Earl, Duke, and Grand Duke. We don't have Viscount or Marquis, and we do add Grand Duke. The coronets are also very different. Uh, Grand Dukes essentially have British Ducal coronets. Dukes have British Marquis coronets. Earls have a essentially a Spanish Viscount coronet, a modified Earl without strawberry leaves. Peerages in the books also work a little bit differently, even though they are based on the British peerage system, because the only peers that are allowed to sit in the uh, Star Kingdom House of Lords are earls and above, whereas barons sit in their planetary House of Lords. So if you are a Manticoran baron, you would sit in the plan Manticoran planetary House of Lords, but not the Star Kingdom or later Star Empire House of Lords. But if you are an earl, you would sit in both a Manticoran earl versus a Griffin or a Sphinxian earl. You would sit in the Manticoran planetary house of lords as well as the Star Kingdom house of lords. So, I hope you've enjoyed this class. I hope you that it brings an interesting historical perspective and that I have not put you to sleep too badly. Remember, uh, this class is over 50 minutes long for the uh, ROIU. It is over one hour long for Rush. It will be registered with both of those uh, groups. So if you listen to it and you are an Outlander or a Kalantiri, please remember to submit for credit. And if you are in a different kingdom that is allowing online uh, class credit right now because of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and social distancing requirements, please look in to see if this qualifies. Let me know at officeruji, O-F-F-I-C-E-R-U-J-I, -E at gmail.com if 
you need me to send something for your kingdom. And hopefully you will get out there and learn and get degrees and feel a little bit less isolated. This has been the SCA University Podcast. I have been your class host, Saito Takauji, and I wish you all a happy, safe, and healthy society birthday.